hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. The relationship between Jesus and his mother, Mary, in the King James Version of the Bible is questionable. There are several interactions that the four synoptic gospels write about, or the synoptic gospels write about, is questionable at best. But when you consider their relationship as it is portrayed in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, the relationship between Jesus and his mother takes on a whole new light. I'll begin with just this story, and usually I emphasize something different, but tonight I want to talk about that relationship. There is great meaning sometimes in what appears to be the most mundane. The beginning of Jesus's miracles was the turning of water into wine. There was a wedding at Cana of Galilee. I've been through the city of Cana, and I've seen where that supposed site is where Jesus turned the water into wine. There's a magnificent church there now. Well, Jesus and his disciples were invited to that wedding. We don't know a lot of the details. So a lot of what happens about who and why and where and how is conjecture. But somewhere late in the festivities, Mary the Savior's mother, came to him and said, they have no wine. Based on the brevity of the texts, it seems that it was an implied request. What was not stated in there is, could you do a miracle? Could you do something and provide the wine? Now, Jesus's answer to her in the King James Version of the Bible, woman, What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. That's what he said in the King James Version. Listen to that again. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, I don't know how you read it, but the way I hear that is, I can't be bothered with such trivial matters as this. Mine hour is not yet come. Why are you bothering me? I've never liked the way that read. And then one day when reading the Joseph Smith translation, this is how the Lord through the prophet Joseph altered those words. He said, woman, what wilt thou have me to do for thee? That will I do for mine hour is not yet come. See the difference in that? Anything you want me to do, I will do while I can, for mine hour is not yet come. In essence, I will do anything I can for you. Mary turned to the servants and said to them, Whatsoever he saith unto you, see that ye do it. And with his disciples watching, Jesus asked the servants to fill some nearby water pots. The amount of water in the six pots would have been close to 150 gallons, if not more. Evidently, this was a very well-attended wedding feast. 
once they'd finished filling them. And without any fuss or fanfare, Jesus said simply, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. The servants brought the new wine to the governor of the feast. He tasted it and exclaimed, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This first miracle passed quietly. There's no evidence that the guests knew anything about what had happened, but the disciples did, and it manifested his glory and strengthened their faith. Moreover, as I've said many times, and especially in Israel, it's no accident that the beginning of the Savior's miracles involved water. When Moses changed water to blood, he proved that God was with him. When he parted the Red Sea, he proved that God was with him. When Jesus turned water to wine, he proved that he was God. That God who controlled the water was God, is God. Now, that reaction of Jesus to his mother is borne out through the rest of the New Testament. Remember, when Mary had searched for him for days in Jerusalem at the age of 12 and he was lost, she said to him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said to her, How is it that ye sought me? Knew ye not that I must be about my father's business? In other words, why were you looking for me? You knew where I would be about my father's business in the temple. But what comes next is what's not very often talked about. Jesus subjected himself and went down with them, notwithstanding what he wanted to do and be about his father's business. He obeyed his mother and went with her. And of course, the story is always told about Jesus in his hour on the cross, committing her care to John. There's one other reference to Jesus in the Gospels when Jesus was in a home preaching. And the brethren, some of his disciples, come and say, thy mother and thy brethren seek thee or are waiting for you outside. And Jesus in the King James Version says, these are my mother and my brethren, meaning they're no longer any responsibility of mine. But the Joseph Smith translation adds this, and Jesus appointed disciples to go and see to her and take care of her. Everything in the Joseph Smith translation reveals a kinder, more sensitive, gentle son. Not just the son of God, but the son of Mary, too. There is a story in the Old Testament. I think I would dare say that this is one of my wife's favorite stories that to me embodies everything good about motherhood. It's the story of Hannah and Samuel. Now, Hannah considered herself a woman greatly afflicted. She was barren, unable to bear children, and in the culture in which she lived, that was a badge of dishonor. And though her husband loved her dearly and treated her well, still for Hannah, there was an ache in her heart that only a child could fill and God could understand. 
one day on an excursion to the temple at Shiloh. Hannah went before the Lord in fasting and prayer. The record says that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. So anxious was Hannah to bear a child that in her prayer she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. End of quote. 1 Samuel 1.11 As Hannah prayed in the temple, Eli, the priest, watched her. He came over to her, and to him Hannah poured out the anguish of her heart. Whereupon Eli, as the Lord's representative and high priest, moved by the Spirit of God, gave Hannah a promise, saying, quote, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. End of quote. Hannah was a woman of great faith. With that Promise secure in her heart, she went on her way rejoicing and at peace. Not long after, true to the promise of the Almighty, Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, which interestingly enough means heard of God. For three years after that, Hannah refused to leave Samuel and leave home. She was attentive to his every need. And then came the day that must have rent her soul. After the appropriate sacrifices were offered, Hannah presented that precious son to Eli at the temple, saying, My Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, also, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. End of quote. And so it was. Samuel became a mighty prophet in Israel. And Hannah, that wonderful woman who had craved so dearly the privilege of being a mother, for her faithfulness, she was blessed with three more sons and two daughters. God keeps his promises. Thank God. And I mean that. Thank God. For those women today, though declining in numbers, who still, like Hannah, yearn to be mothers, who still pray to the God of Israel, for the privilege of bearing children, who still, once they have them, refuse to leave them for other pursuits, whose hearts are still rent by the great sacrifice of giving those children up to travel to the other side of the world in the service of the Lord. Those mothers, like Hannah, change history, and heaven will honor them forever and ever. End of quote. You okay? I hope I don't say anything wrong. I pray and invite you to pray for the Spirit of the Lord 
that these words and these stories will be received in the spirit of love and kindness. And hopefully and prayerfully, something will speak to you that is far beyond me. In the last general conference, Elder Garrett W. Gong and others mentioned that we have reached an interesting milestone in the church. We've reached that point where there are more single adults in the church than married ones. That news has troubled me as I have thought about it. All of the people out there, lonely and alone, with no companion. I feel bad. And if this devotional is the only way I can share some comfort with those that are alone and lonely, then I want to. Especially all those mothers out there who are going it alone, raising children alone. I minister to two of them. You are heroes to me. I don't know how you do it. November the 26th, 1836. Austin and Nancy Hammer purchased 96 acres of land just opening up in northern Missouri. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. Contract for the land, improve it, and once it was surveyed, pay only a buck and a quarter per acre. Austin and Nancy worked hard, established a prosperous farm, and supported their growing family. Then, October 30th, 1838, an angry mob attacked the nearby settlement of Hans Mill. Austin was among those guarding the mill on that day. Eight-year-old John, his son, later recalled that day, quote, I stood in the yard with my mother. Our anxiety, of course, was great as to the fate of the brethren at Hans Mill, knowing also that my father and uncle had gone there to aid in its protection and assist those of our friends who lived there. We were standing there at exactly at the time this bloody butchery was committed, and of course we were all looking eagerly in the direction of the mill. While in this attitude, a crimson-colored vapor, like a mist or thin cloud, ascended up from the precise place where we knew the mill to be located and was carried or streamed upward into the sky, apparently as high as our sight could extend. At that hour, we had not heard a word of what had taken place at the mill, but as quick as my mother and aunt saw this red, blood-like token, they commenced to wring their hands and moan, declaring they knew that their husbands had been murdered. The day following, John learned that his father and 16 others had indeed been killed, leaving, in John's case, a wife and six children. John further said, The death of my father, Austin Hammer, left our family in a very helpless condition. It would have been an event of sufficient melancholy had he died at home of sickness where his family could have administered to his needs, but to have him cut down in his prime, 33 years of age, and be torn from his family ruthlessly and cruelly 
so intensified the gloom which rested down upon our bereaved circle. For a time, he said, it seemed that no ray of joy would ever be able to penetrate our bosoms again. End of quote. The mob then sent word audaciously that the remaining Latter-day Saints had 10 days to leave the state or be killed. John continued, The burden of all this preparation and removal on our part rested on Mother. A less healthy and resolute woman could not have had the courage and endurance to grapple successfully with the obstacles that lay in her path. We had to flee, destitute and hunted, because of our religion. My mother at this time was about 32 years old. Well do I remember the sufferings of those days. Our family had one wagon and one blind horse, and that blind horse had to transport our effects to the state of Illinois. Into this wagon we placed our clothing, bedding, some cornmeal, and what scanty provisions we could muster, and started out into the cold on foot to eat and sleep by the wayside with the canopy of heaven for a covering. The bitter frost and biting winds were less barbarous and pitiless than the demons in human form from whose fury we fled. There was scarcely a day while we were on the road, uh, John said, that it did not either snow or rain. The nights and mornings were very cold for our unsheltered and exposed condition. My mother, he said, seemed to be endowed with fortitude and resolution and appeared to be inspired to devise ways and means whereby she could administer comforts to her suffering children and keep them in good spirits. Her faith and confidence had ever been great in the Lord. But now when all this weight and responsibility had fallen upon her with no husband to lean upon, she felt indeed that God was her greatest and best friend. At last, John said, we reached the Mississippi River, and we were indeed happy. We gazed upon the opposite side of the river with hearts overflowing with thanksgiving to our Heavenly Father for reminding us that God ruled the heavens and took cognizance of those conditions of those people on earth. Behind the story of the great massacre at Hans Mill, the martyrdom at Hans Mill, is the story of those who in faith went on, Nancy Hammer. I tell you that story because I know that there are some dear women out there who, like Nancy, didn't plan on being alone, and yet... You go forward with God as your friend to raise your children, be a good mother, a good grandmother, and do the best you can in the service of the Lord. Thank you. And once again, in my mind and in my eyes, you are a hero. Now, the brethren, and I've heard it two or three times in the last little while, commenting on how deep pure and perfect, is a mother's love. I don't think we would be so audacious as to say that's the case with every mother, 
but for every righteous, faithful daughter of God, trusted by him to bring children into this world, that love surely must approach the Savior's love for all of us. I know, and I won't claim to know or understand a mother's love. I only know what I've seen for myself with the women in my life, my daughters, my wife, my own mother. This story seems to say it all when it comes to a mother's love. July 1st, 1856, somewhere on the Overland Trail in Nebraska Territory. About noon on July 1st, six-year-old Arthur Parker, feverish and ill, sat down to rest by the side of the trail and quickly fell asleep in tall grass. The MacArthur Handcart Company, which I believe was the second or third company to go out, pushed on, unaware that Arthur was asleep in the grass. That is, until the onslaught of a violent and sudden thunderstorm later that afternoon forced the immigrants to stop and set up camp. Well, Arthur was discovered missing, and a search was mounted that lasted the rest of that day and all night long. Meanwhile, storm, thunder, and lightning raged fearfully all night, according to the accounts. The immigrants lay all night in wet clothes until morning and awoke with water running under them in streams. The next morning, three men, including Captain MacArthur, Daniel MacArthur, went back and searched again for the lost child, but he was nowhere to be found. The company remained in camp for the day, waiting and drying out, hoping and praying. The morning of the third day, July 3rd, 1856, the company moved on. They had to. Time was precious and food was scarce. They had to move on. Robert Parker determined to go back and look for his son, his wife, Anne, Arthur's mother, whom Robert had once described as, quote, the most beautiful girl in England. She pinned a bright red shawl about his shoulders, telling him that if he found Arthur dead, he could use that shawl to bury him. And if he found Arthur alive, he could use the shawl to signal them. Now, I know you've heard this story. But would you stop for a moment, you mothers and fathers who are or want to be or will someday be? Imagine Robert and Anne's feelings. I can't. Robert turned east and backtracked along the trail, and Anne and their three remaining children picked up their handcart turned west and followed the company. The camp moved an incredible and exhausting 25 miles that day. Throughout the day, as you can imagine, Anne kept glancing over her shoulder to see if Robert was coming. A camp was made that night. Anne climbed the highest eminence in the area and looked off into the east for a sign. For anything. Consumed by worry, 
and could not sleep. Why? Because the danger of wolves on the Piner Trail was real, and we're not talking coyotes. Stories of immigrants devoured by wolves was known to all travelers, and the constant threat of Indians and kidnap. What if Arthur had been taken? On July the 4th, the camp again moved forward another 22 miles, and once again, Anne passed the day vigilant but weary. July 5th, the company remained in camp. Then, Sunday morning, July 6th, 1856, at 8.30 a.m., Anne saw in rays of the rising sun the red shawl and recognized her husband's familiar gait. It is said, quote, The brave little mother sank in a pitiful heap in the sand, and for the first night in six nights she slept. End of quote. Diarist Archer Walters witnessed the boy's return and recorded, quote, great joy throughout the camp. The mother's joy I cannot describe. End of quote. Arthur had awakened along the trail to find himself alone. When the storms hit, he took shelter under a tree, spending the night in the open. The wolves found him surrounded him and howled, but strangely did not harm him. The next morning, the lad walked nine miles to the home of a Dutchman, where Robert Parker later found him and the boy was saved. Thank the Lord for the prayers, the love, and the faith of stubbornly righteous parents. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.